Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Without College podcast. Today, I have a really great conversation to share with you, one that I had with a gentleman named Christopher Stair. Chris is a libertarian candidate for the state assembly, another one, and he is a very ambitious young guy to be running for office. He has a PhD in cognitive neuroscience. I think that gives him an interesting perspective on politics and the media today. It was an awesome conversation. I wish him the best of luck in this November 6th general election. And I hope you really enjoy this conversation. Without further delay, here is Christopher Stair. Chris, thanks for joining us today on the show. Pleasure to be with you. Thanks for inviting me on. Absolutely. I'm, I'm really excited for you and for this election that's coming up here. Um, for the listeners, w- would you uh, be willing to tell them sort of what you're running for, what what's your intentions are, and, and sort of what you represent? Sure. So I'm, I'm running for uh, the California State Assembly in the 51st District of California. So that's uh, a little bit northeast of downtown, just kind of encompassing that area. And I'm running as a libertarian candidate, uh, currently against the incumbent Democrat that's uh, running for re-election. And really, my main intentions are to, uh, well, one, to win, obviously, um, but two, to uh, you know, spread the ideas of liberty and also to give uh, voters a, a, a good uh, sense that there's a third choice out there. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of people out there really disillusioned with the two-party system, and I kind of wanted to step in where there's a void when somebody's running completely unopposed to give people another choice. Is this the first uh, time that this incumbent has been, you know, opposed by a, a libertarian? Actually, this incumbent has only been in office for about a year. Uh, she actually entered office last fall during a special election because the person that had her seat before got elected to U.S. Congress. So she's only been in office for a year. She's never held political office before. So she's almost as much of a newbie as I am to the to the political scene. Okay. Okay. That's pretty cool. And do you do, do candidates for state assembly, do you ever try to like arrange a debate or, or anything like that? Uh, you know, sometimes it happens. Uh, I wasn't really able to this this cycle um but i'm thinking you know um you know uh if i you know i do plan to run again whether i win or lose um and i would like to do something like that in the future but uh it just wasn't in the cards this time (laughs) yeah yeah i'm with you so when we met at at politicon i i you know we, we met last weekend and and i asked you uh you know, what compels you to take on such a difficult task? And, and would you mind sharing your, your answer with, with the audience? Yeah, I mean, it really comes down to after the 2016 election, it was kind of, uh, I think a lot of people kind of realized they need to take action into their own hands. They can just keep sitting on the sidelines and just, you know, casting their votes and hoping that that's the best way they can make their voice heard. Um, you really got to go out there and do something else. Um, and you know, a lot of young people out there, you know, were saying, you know, we got to go out and do something. You got to do something. And 
you know, some people took that to mean, you know, we need to throw trash cans through storefront windows. And <laughs> I decided to, uh, you know, maybe do something a little more productive and maybe kind of spread some actual ideas and alternatives. Do you, have you heard a lot of feedback about your age? Uh, you know, I actually haven't. And it's really funny because I don't, not a lot of people have actually asked about my age. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I actually, I mean, when I was at Politicon, I talked to a couple of people and they're like, you're running for, you seem so young. And, um, but that was really the first time I'd really heard anything about that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a cool thing. Like you're, you're breaking the mold, you know? And, and yeah. 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 I mean, it's, I mean, that's the kind of the, uh, another thing about it is that I, I figured, you know, why not start early? I mean, it's, it's something that I definitely thought about. I'm like, I'm pretty young. I'm pretty inexperienced, but at the same time, it's like, how do you get that experience? And it's you know, good to get that experience while you're young, you know, hopefully, you know, continue getting, you know, more and more success as you, uh, learn a lot more. And for me, this has been a really huge learning experience. I've talked to a lot of people who are a lot more experienced about the political process than I am um, that have been helping me out. And it's just been uh, a really eye-opening and uh, a really cool thing to do. Well, what are some of those things that you've learned from from doing this? Uh, just generally how, the, how campaigns are run. Um, it's not something I'd really given a whole lot of thought to. I mean, I've learned about how many bureaucratic hoops you kind of have to jump through um, in order to even get your name on the ballot. Uh, you know, I had to go door to door and get tons of signatures. I had to fill out so many different forms for, you know, campaign finance uh, type of things. Um, and then just also learning about campaign strategy and learning about, you know, the different systems people are using. And even, you know, uh, you know, just to bring up Politicon again, there are so many people there that, you know, run these, you know, really innovative, uh, you know, tech companies, you know, for uh, running political campaigns. And it's just been really cool learning about the different strategies that people use to uh, to campaign and get the, their word out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can imagine it's really one of those things that you have, you, you can't wrap your head around until you try to do it. Yeah, exactly. What, what, um, did, did you go to college? I did. Yeah. So I, uh, I actually attended the university of Notre Dame, uh, and graduated in 2012. That's awesome. Cool. Um, I, I imagine you're probably one of the first, uh, you know, you gotta be one of the youngest people running for office, you know, in California. Do you have any, do you know for sure? Uh, you know, I actually don't. I think as for, I, you know, the only people that I really knew, like know personally are the people, other libertarians running. And I think I might be the youngest among them. I'm not sure. Um, exactly. I think I'm the youngest one I've met, but, um, but yeah, definitely. Um, most of the people that I talk to or I see running are, are a little bit older. <laughs> That's for mm -hmm. sure. Uh, what, what, uh, to kind of go back to those requirements that you had to do to, to get in, uh, you know, to get your name on the ballot. Is there any sort of, did you notice a difference for being a libertarian candidate versus being, you know, if you were a Democrat or a Republican? Is there any? Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because you have to get, you know, it doesn't sound like a lot. You have to get, I think it's 40 signatures to get on the ballot. Um, and to run as a write-in, um, and, you know, I think the, the Democrats and Republicans have a lot more kind of uh, uh, efficient systems in place to get those signatures really quickly. Uh, and I think the thing that our party really needs to, you know, do is get organized. And we have some really good leadership that just uh, that just came in. It's running the county party um, that's trying to do stuff like this, trying to get libertarians on a list that we can, you know, just easily recruit people to get those signatures instead of having to go knock on strangers' doors. Um, but other than that, I mean, you have to pay really hefty fees just to get on the on the ballot if you don't want to run as a write-in and that's not funding that we really have a lot of uh you know it's not something we have a lot of money for uh, as much as you know democrats and mm -hmm. 
Republicans do, that's kind of chump change to them to just, you know, front the thousand dollars or so to get your name on the ballot. But for us, it's kind of a big deal. That is really interesting because it's it's like how can other parties sort of get involved if if there are you know these extra barriers, extra roadblocks without you know a bunch of money, right? And then I mean the biggest roadblock of all is just the two part the um, the top two system we have in our on our ballots where only the top two people, regardless of party, the top two people who get the most votes in the primary system end up going on to the general election, and that could be two Democrats, it could be two Republicans. Um, you know, but pretty commonly it's a Democrat and a Republican and it's, uh, you know, two is a kind of a strangely specific number, uh, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that perfectly corresponds with our two major parties. Um, yeah. What, what, uh, what kind of things, what kind of changes could you make on the state assembly as a libertarian? Like how could you influence the, the overall, the group of, of, you know, all the other people? Like what, what kind of things is the state assembly responsible for? Uh, well, the state assemblies are, uh, you know, kind of the, the, the primary source of, you know, drafting and, you know, uh, passing legislation for the state. Uh, and I think having a libertarian in there like myself, um, you know, there's a lot of things that I really agree with the Republicans on. There's a lot of things I really agree with the Democrats on. And there's obviously a lot of things to disagree with both of them on. Uh, but I think having a libertarian in there, you kind of are able to enter the, the discussion from a place where, uh, a place of better goodwill where people on the left are able to, you know, see you as less of an enemy and the people on the right are able to see you as less of an enemy. And maybe you can bring two sides together to um, actually work on effective solutions. Okay. Okay. What, what, uh, with your experience being a libertarian, what, what would you say is your, how would you define it? Cause that seems to be one of the, the common things I hear about from libertarians is that there's, no one specific, clear, obvious platform or beliefs. It, it's where everyone is, uh, you know, on their own. When I talked to uh, Mimi, she she described it like trying to herd cats. Like, everyone, <laughs> you know, it's like impossible. Uh, so what's your definition of libertarian? Well, it's funny you say that because I, you know, the reason I really got into libertarianism, uh, and when I say like got into libertarianism, I don't just mean, uh, you know, I've known what, what it was, and I don't just mean considering myself that, but I mean really digging into the philosophy of it and, uh, you know, listening to what libertarian thinkers really have to say. And the thing that really draws me to libertarianism is the fact that it is an ideology and it is a, a philosophically consistent ideology that has some very core, like solid uh, first principles um, that extend to pretty much every issue. Um, and, you know, though those first principles uh, just revolve around uh, what's called the non-aggression principle, which means you just don't hurt people and don't take their stuff uh, or cheat them out of anything. And that from there, you can pretty much, um, you know, uh, devise your policy positions from that. Uh, and in, in the other kind of a big center of libertarian philosophy is the idea of private property rights and not infringing on those. Uh, but even though I think libertarians have the most ideologically consistent philosophy out of any of the political groups, uh, what's funny about it is that libertarians tend to be people that think about this stuff a lot. And because they think about it a lot, they end up getting a lot more kind of nuances to their position, which is kind of, I think, what Mimi was referring to is that libertarians tend to be very individualistic and they tend to have, well, my my philosophy only aligns with yours 95%, so we can't possibly be on the same team. 
Uh, so there's there's a bit of that uh, within the community. <laughs> yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, do you have any examples off the top of your head of maybe some of the you know the of those basic principles for the other parties? Some of their inconsistencies, mm-hmm. like maybe sure. how some policy you know doesn't align with others. Yeah. So well, I mean, I think one of the biggest ones when you're looking at the Republicans is that they claim to be small government. Yet they want this huge military, you know, they always want huge military funding. They always want this uh, extra funding for the police who are the ones who are, you know, kind of the arbiters of enforcing government dictates. Uh, and, you know, honestly, they're, they're just hypocritical when they talk about fiscal responsibility because they don't generally actually vote along those lines. Um, and then when you look at Democrats, um, you know, they... <sighs> <laughs> don't want to offend anybody <laughs> oh no it's all right no it's not i'm just trying to um think of what they you know they the thing is they, they they like to talk about having choice and about freedom but the thing is they don't really want you to have a lot of they they they're willing to give people the freedoms they want people to have but when it comes to things that they find distasteful things like let's say, uh, gun rights or things like, um, you know, uh, allowing people to conduct business with whomever they want to or letting businesses just operate however they want to. Um, you know, you find a lot of hypocrisy there because they're, even though they claim to be for freedom, they tend to uh, use the government as a tool to kind of uh, make people fall in line with what they want. Yeah, I, th- I sort of see that with with like gay marriage, you know, it's mm-hmm. something that you'd think like, oh, marriage equality, everyone should be able to get married. But what they're really advocating for is is the government allowing everyone to get married, where a libertarian would probably be like, government should probably have their hands off this whole marriage thing, right? Well, exactly. And a lot of their positions seem awfully opportunistic. I mean, you look at even Obama, when he entered office, he was anti-gay marriage. But as soon as the, the polling tipped over to over 51%, you know, in support, suddenly mm-hmm. it's in favor. And libertarians have been in support of gay marriage for decades and decades. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of these these causes that uh, that progressives tend to champion, libertarians have been championing them for a while. And even right now, we're a, a ahead of the curve on some of those issues. We take a more extreme stance in most cases on drug legalization. A lot of libertarians are 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 almost strictly like open border. They're a lot more willing to accept immigrants than even Democrats are. Um, so libertarians have always taken a bolder stance on a lot of social issues than even Democrats do. Um, so I, I do find a bit of hypocrisy there. Um, and that's not to take away from the same type of hypocrisy that we see within the Republican Party as well. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it's you know once you dig into it, you'll see hypocrisy on both sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, what, what's your stance on you know immigration? Given you know sort of you know we're in Southern California in the news, there's this migrant caravan you know on its way north. How do you how do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean it's a really complicated situation, especially. Um, given our welfare state right now, um, a lot of libertarians are actually really torn on this issue because some people, you know, the the really purest stance on this is that people should be able to move wherever they want to. You know, if you are stopping somebody from moving somewhere, you are using the force of government to prevent somebody from doing something that doesn't actually directly harm another person. But where the problem comes in is that when people are, I think there is a valid argument that, you know, when immigrants come in, they do use resources and that are being funded by American taxpayers. And we can't just simply, you know, keep giving money away and away and away and away to immigrants as they keep coming in, you know, 
faster and faster. Um, so there is a bit of a contradiction there. My personal stance is that I think that um, individual liberty should take precedence first and you should go back to those first principles and I think that you should not limit people's freedom um, even if there is some sort of utilitarian argument to be made because when you go down that path, I think you can justify a lot of um, really bad things. But I think at the end of the day, I think the really big solution to the immigration, some of these problems that people talk about when they talk about immigration is, um, I think the biggest thing is ending the war on drugs. Um, and you look at the reason that there's so much violence, um, you know, in Mexico and, you know, in South is, is this smuggling of this black market that we have for drugs coming into the United States and that encourages violence and, you know, makes people flee those areas. Uh, and, you know, frankly, I think if we stop the war on drugs, we would probably kind of stem off a lot of these issues. Mm -hmm. Okay. But to, I, I'm, I'm curious about another, you know, sort of stance that a libertarian would have on this. Cause honestly, I don't really have a full fledged idea on it. I think mm -hmm. it's a complex problem that not many people have a good solution for, but um, in California, homelessness is obviously mm -hmm. a, a big concern. It's a big concern for a lot of people. And I'm wondering if there's sort of like a libertarian stance on that or, or what kind of remedies for that problem do you see me personally? So in California, it's one of the hardest states to actually build housing in. There are tons and tons of regulations and um, restrictions on where you can build and how you can build. And it makes it a really unattractive place for, uh, for developers to want to invest in. Um, and when you, they do invest in, you know, building things, they tend to invest in, you know, luxury condominiums and things like that. Um, so what we really need to do is up zone, which means just the allowing for more development in more places. Uh, and, you know, just kind of make it easier to build and, and, you know, kind of cut out some of the bureaucracy there. Because a lot of it isn't really due to actual genuine, uh, you know, safety concerns or, or anything like that. A lot of it is just a simple, you know, I don't want this in my backyard. I don't want a high-rise apartment building in my neighborhood. And, you know, you see this from people across the political spectrum. Um, and I think it's really hypocritical for those same people to demand that uh, landlords, you know, have their, their income forcibly restricted just because they don't want an apartment building in their neighborhood. You know, mm -hmm. if they're really genuinely compassionate about these people that we see on the streets all over the place, they would be in favor of increasing the supply of housing so that we can uh, drive prices down. Okay. Wow. So, so you feel it's mostly a housing problem that's created the homelessness? Oh, I mean, I think that's, that's a, a large part of it. I mean, housing, the prices of housing here are just way, way, way out of hand. Yeah. And I mean, I think anytime um, you have a really a climate like this, I mean, I used to live in Tucson and, mm -hmm. You, there are plenty of homeless people there. I think anytime you have a really nice climate, you're n it's always going to be a place that attracts homeless people because, you know, obviously you can sleep outside and not die from the yeah. home. Yeah. Um, so you're never going to be able to entirely eliminate it. And I think that's always going to be a problem in Southern California. But the point that it's gotten to is definitely um, has an economic factor to it. And, you know, just simply increasing the supply. It's not necessarily that these homeless people are going to be moving into, you know, high rise luxury condominiums. But some people that are living in, you know, slightly wor worse places are going to move up and everybody's going to kind of be able to move up a little bit. Prices are going to be lowered. So um, I definitely think that that's one step we need to take to, uh, to help the homeless problem. Yeah, see, where I, where I find there to be like a real gray area with sort of the libertarian ideology with homeless people is like the individual freedoms and you're not hurting anyone. It's sort of like, right. you know, you see all these tents pitched up on the side of the road and it's like, well, they're mm -hmm. not hurting anybody and they're not infringing on my freedom but there's something off here. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing. And I mean, that's I think one of the biggest problems is obviously mental health, and you, you can't force people to get help for mental health. You can't. Mm-hmm. That that's a really stri- sticky situation, I think, for um, you know, a lot of you know people who are trying to address that issue is that you can't force people to get help, so then they end up just wandering the streets, and it's it's really it's really quite sad. Yes, it is. It is. Well, to get off of the homelessness, I'm, I'm curious about how you got into all this. Like, when did you start? When did your like sort of interest in politics begin, politics or government? Uh, I actually got interested at a pretty young age. So back when I was in you know, fourth, fifth grade uh, during the 2000 election, okay. um, I got actually pretty interested and my dad kind of walked me through it. And he's, he's very conservative, um, but he kind of, you know, showed me the ropes and, you know, um, kind of taught me about all the basics about what was going on. And I continued to be really uh, interested in the issues and, and interested in what was going on. And I've always kept my kind of finger on the pulse of what's been going on. And honestly, I consider myself a conservative for a really long time. Um, although uh, certain individual liberty issues kind of just, I kind of made exceptions for them individually as the years went on, you know, what was uh, capital punishment or gay marriage or uh, marijuana legalization, you know, I just was, you know, conservative, accept this, accept this, accept this, accept this. Um, and so I always, I actually consider myself a consider, you know, libertarian leaning conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, but after the 2016 election, again, I kind of, um, I really actually uh, started kind of more seriously kind of looking at other philosophies because I found Gary Johnson um, in his campaign and I was really inspired by him. And he actually said some stuff about foreign policy, which piqued my interest because um, that was the kind of the one thing stopping me from being libertarian uh, was because I thought libertarians are isolationists and that we just wanted to shut ourselves off from the world, which, which is not true. Uh, we're not interventionists. Um, we still want to trade with everybody else in the world. We just don't want to start meddling in their uh, affairs with force. Um, so then that made me consider myself libertarian. And I started, uh, like I said, digging into the philosophy a bit more. Um, but in terms of why I started, decided to run for office, um, yeah. I just finished, um, I finished graduate school uh, last December. I got my PhD in cognitive neuroscience. And um, as you can imagine, those five years getting that were extremely busy. And I had really no time to even consider doing anything like political activism. Uh, so all this, all this stuff, moving to California, um, finishing my degree, the 2016 election, uh, digging into libertarian philosophy, all these things kind of uh, dovetailed into me kind of uh, thinking, why don't I run for office? And I reached out to the chair of the state libertarian party. And, you know, he told me, hey, person in your district's running unopposed. Why don't you, why don't you go for it? That's awesome, man. How, how would you, um, you know, so you have a PhD. How, how has that degree uh, helped you? Is it, uh, have you been able to apply some of, the, some of what you've learned in, in, in your years in school sort of in this campaign and what you're doing now? Yeah, I mean, I think widely speaking, because, um, you know, my degree, uh, you know, the uh, cognitive, field of cognitive neuroscience really concerns itself with you know, why people think the way they think um, and kind of the biological underpinnings of that, but also kind of just how all those systems work together. And I think when you're talking about politics, it's really um, insightful to know how people think. And it's really insightful to know kind of the biases that affect them and kind of why they're coming from where they're coming from. And I think that's a huge problem we have today is this unwillingness or inability to really understand where other people are coming from and what their thought processes are uh, and just immediately kind of, you know, disregarding them or even villainizing them. And uh, I think it's been really helpful for me to kind of understand why people think the way they think. Um, 
you know, and kind of approach things a bit objectively. Um, in a way, obviously, I'm not saying that I'm a completely objective person, but, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly something that I think helps probably to some degree, if, you know, even if not explicitly. With that experience, sort of like understanding psychology, how do you have any like remedy, <laughs> any, any way to, to bridge this divide between people? Like how yeah. would a, a cognitive neuroscientist go about that? I mean, you know, and some of the stuff that I, that I, you know, I'm referring to are things that are pretty, you know, stuff that you learn in, you know, like psych 101, but yeah, yeah um, sure. things that I, that I, that I become second nature to me because I, I, they're just things that I think about a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, mean, I think the biggest one is really just um, this idea of confirmation bias and this idea of seeking out alternative thought. Uh, and that's something that I think a lot of people are unwilling to do. It's something that has become easier to avoid, uh, given our current, uh, media structure. Uh, and that's one of the things that, you know, I, you know, I try to get my sources of news from as many different places as possible. I listen to tons of libertarian sources, but I also listen to, you know, I listen to NPR, I listen to straight up socialist, uh, sources. I, you know, listen to conservative, you know, uh, podcasts, you know, I, I try to get my, my stuff from everywhere. And I think it's just exposing yourself to what other people are thinking is just so it can't be overstated how helpful that is to just not only informing your own politics, but really making you um, more empathetic to other people and being able to have genuine, good, constructive conversations with other people. Yeah. It seems like being information agnostic is something that is hard to even recommend to people these days. You tell them like, you know, you got to look on the other side of the aisle. They're like, what are you a Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's, I think everybody's on this kind of this, uh, uh, what do you call it? Like a snipe hunt for this, this, uh, unbiased news source. And everybody thinks they have their unbiased news source, right? You mm-hmm. know, friends that think NPR is just the most unbiased thing they can get their information from. So that's all they listen to. Or they think Fox news is the only, is the most unbiased thing they can listen to. There is no such thing as an unbiased news source, period. There, there just isn't. So I think you really just need to dive into people who are unapologetically and honestly biased and listen to a bunch of different people. Because if you convince yourself that you, the information that you're getting is unbiased, then there's really not a lot of hope for you in terms of actually receiving good information and uh, recognizing biases. What, how do you uh, qualify good information in the news? What, what do you sort of look for? Uh, well, that's the thing is that, you know, when you, when you look at news and you look at these, you know, things like fact checkers and things, um, they account for outright lies, but you can't, it's really, it's much harder to account for things that are omitted Mm -hmm. from reporting. And when I listen to things, you know, when I listen to things on NPR, I listen to socialists, uh, you know, read socialist materials. There are things that libertarians don't ever bring up. And there are things that it helps me consider, um, you know, libertarians are pretty notoriously bad for just kind of avoiding the topic of the environment. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause it's a really tricky uh, topic to really fit in the conventional libertarian framework. Um, so that's just not talked about. So you have to go to other sources to talk about those things. Um, or, you know, certain sources will not talk about things that harm the party that they support. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really tricky to, uh, know that you're getting the right information um, without actually exploring a bunch of options because you're always going to be missing something. Uh, all right. So by 
expanding your horizon, expanding the spectrum of information that you're looking at, you're actually seeing not just what's being reported, but what's not being reported. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I think that's that to me, I think is a, that's a, that's a huge tip right there to help people understand all this media, all this news. Mm -hmm. What do you think of people that, you know, especially young people are so apathetic politically. They say, I, I was talking to a coworker today and, you know, after sort of going over just the latest news, he's, he was like, man, this, this is just tiring to think about all this stuff. <laughs> do you have any advice, recommendations for those people? Yeah, I mean, I, I completely sympathize with that. And, you know, trust me, I, I, I can certainly say that it's tiring for me as well to, to kind of say <laughs> stuff as well. Um, but, I mean, I guess my only advice would be that you don't have to know everything about everything, in my opinion. I think that part of why people are feeling more uh, kind of... Uh, you know, apathetic about things and kind of, you know, overwhelmed with things and ready to just kind of throw the towel in. It's simply because we have so much more information right now. We have so many more options. We have so much access to every single thing that's going on in the world at all times. And we feel this sort of sense of obligation that we need to keep up with all of it. Um, and I think that for most people, you know, you have your own life to lead. You have your job, you have your family, you have your hobbies, you have your communities. And that's something I think is really I think important and understated in a lot of this conversation is the fact that we need to focus on our individual lives and our inter, inter, individual kind of relationships with other people and our relationships with our own individual communities. Because if all you're focusing on is whatever Trump's doing or whatever's happening at the national level or you're even at the state level, if all you're doing is focusing on that, it can very easily become overwhelming and it can very easily feel like you're spinning your wheels because you're not putting that effort into uh you know, fixing things at a more local level and just being a more active participant in your own community. Has your, uh, your political activism, has it, has it sparked interest or inspired any, any of your close friends or, or, you know, relatives or it's got other people more politically involved? Uh, I don't know how many of them have become really more politically involved, but I think a lot of them are kind of surprised when I told them that I was running for office. Um, you know, and, and it has sparked, you know, I, I've made some really good friends out here. Um, since moving to LA and, you know, a couple of them I've, I've been able to talk to, you know, more openly about this sort of thing. They kind of come to me and talk to me, you know, about certain issues. Um, but, uh, yeah, I haven't really seen a whole lot of people doing something as extreme as running for office, but I, you know, I, I am hopeful that people are kind of, um, I have noticed that more people are recognizing that there is a problem with the current system at the very least. Um, you know, and we see this in California, you know, party preference is kind of the, the fastest growing, you know, political affiliation. Um, and, I, and I see that played out in the people I know all the time and they're looking for other things. And I'm happy to be there to kind of uh, maybe inspire them or kind of give them an option, even if it's uh, if libertarian isn't there to their tastes. <laughs> yeah, totally. How do you think? Uh do you have any ideas about how libertarians in general can sort of just get more publicity, do better marketing or, or just get out there more get more information spread? Yeah. I mean, that, this is kind of an ongoing question in the, the kind of wider libertarian party, this idea of whether we should be running a few really good candidates or just running a bunch of, you know, a whole ton of, you know, whoever we can get to run. Um, I would probably fall in that latter category or <laughs> like, cause I have no experience, you know? Uh, so I definitely benefit from that latter uh, 
uh, feel the thought. Yeah. But I, you know, I, I think that, um, and I, I think libertarians are actually good at this, and I'm, I'm glad for it. Uh, just being bold and being open about what you believe, and being courageous about what you believe, and not shying away from conversations like this. Uh, I think that that's really important because I think, uh, like I said before, a lot of like you were bringing up people feeling apathetic. I think a lot of people just kind of want to throw the towel in and not discuss politics. And I think it's an important thing to discuss. Um, Libertarian Party overall, if, if libertarians want to be successful, I think they need to engage in politics. And a lot of libertarians don't want to do that. They see it as antithetical to libertarianism, being involved with the state. Mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, that's the state is what has power. And if you want to affect change, you have to kind of do it through those channels unless you're, I can't even think of another way that, <laughs> that libertarians would have any sort of influence really um, other than through just discussion and through being politically active. Yeah, you got to go through the proper channels, whether yeah. you like it or not. Yeah. Um, I'm always curious to collect people's ideas on like how they could see the voting process improve because you're up close mm -hmm. and personal to it. You're probably seeing firsthand what it takes to get elected. Uh, how do you see, you know, how, how do you think voting should be in the 21st century? Yeah, you know, I, it's interesting because there's always this idea of we just need more people to vote. And more, if we have more people voting, then everything will get better. We just need more. Well, no, I, if people aren't voting, it's because they don't care. And I frankly, I don't want those people voting. If you don't care about enough to actually stand, like to actually go out and vote and do that simple thing, you probably don't care enough to actually stay informed on the issues. And I, I you know, I, I don't think that that's the solution. I think we need to reform um, some of our. Uh, voting procedures. So like I mentioned, that top two system in California has got to go. Um, but even better would be some sort of form of representational, you know, voting or um, some sort of ranked choice voting where people can kind of put their, you know, second choice. Um, you know, there's all sorts of voting systems out there that, you know, people talk about, but really, I think most Americans are, don't really give it a second thought, uh, this kind of first past the post system we currently have. So um, I think we do need to spread the word about alternatives to voting as well. And I think that would certainly help all third parties and pretty much really all voters and better represent them. How, what do you think about using technology to, you know, make voting more accessible? What, what do you think, like, if you were in the state assembly and you brought that, you know, tried drafting a bill for that, what do you think the reaction would be? To something like online voting? Yeah. Uh, you know, honestly, I don't really know enough about it. Um, you know, I've heard of people using things like blockchain to, you know, uh, ensure that people are voting, you know, uh, honestly, you know, that people, each person gets one vote. Uh, you know, I think that that's a super promising idea, and I would certainly be interested in looking into it. Um, but I think at the end of the day, um, things like that tend, that just simply get more people to vote, I don't think is the answer. I, I think the real answer is reforming our system so that uh, more people can be represented by, you know, uh, giving them more options while they're voting in terms of who they're voting for, not necessarily the way that they're voting. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because then you're, you know, then you're left with a situation where it's like, all right, well, what do you get, like a voting app? And then who gets to write, like, what the policies? Right. Know, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's certainly a challenge. Um, what other, you know, are there any other sort of things facing California that, that you know, you, you think you'd really, you know, that you feel passionate about that you'd, you'd want to bring to the assembly? Uh, well, I mean, it's not really one issue, um, but this whole 
debt that we have. Um, we have over $400 billion in debt and unfunded liabilities, uh, you know, unfunded pensions, things like that. And <laughs> currently our method seems to be, well, we're just going to keep taxing the wealthy and we're just going to keep taxing big businesses. And at the end of the day, there's, you can only do that so much before those businesses leave. And I'm really worried about California's financial future. And that's not to say, you know, and I think we need to change that. And it's not to say that we need to just pull the rug out from people that are currently relying on certain social service, you know, programs. Mm -hmm. uh, but we do need to wean ourselves off of that. And we need to, people in my generation, your generation, we need to start kind of owning, you know, preparing for our own retirements, preparing for the fact that social security might not be there for us, preparing for the fact that our, if we work for the government, we might, might not have a pension waiting for us at the end of the road. And we really need to stop telling people that that stuff's going to be there for them because it might not be. And it's really looking like it's, and I think it's just a really, uh, just a really morally just disingenuous thing to do is to keep propping up these systems as though they're going to be sustainable when they really aren't. And it's a hard pill for people to swallow, but I think it's something that people need to recognize and we really need to allow people to be a little more independent in the state because we are really are relying on public funds too much. Yeah. I think that's, that's gotta be one of the biggest challenges to it's really getting millennials to take responsibility because you know, it's not only taking responsibility for your own retirement, but, you know, what do we do about all the people that are going to be depending on those social security, those welfare programs that, you know, if they go away, they're too old or they're not able to work or support themselves. Like, what do we do about those people? Well, exactly. And, you know, uh, going back to that, this idea of psychology influencing how we think about things, um, there's this idea of the diffusion of responsibility, where if you have a whole lot of people around and somebody's in trouble, you assume that somebody else is going to take care of them. If somebody else is going to help them and then nobody does. Mm -hmm. And currently I think that our government programs encourage that type of thinking. Whereas where it used to be, you have your, an elderly neighbor that you know needs help with something, or you have your parents that need to live somewhere. Um, you know, they don't have any money. They you've lost all their money or something. You know, it used to just be assumed, okay, well, mom and dad are going to live with us now and the grandkids. Now it's like, Oh, well, they don't have social security or oh, they can't fend for themselves. All right, we'll put them in a home, you know, it, there's there's this kind of general attitude where we don't have this direct responsibility for our communities and the people that live around us. Um, and I think that um, setting up these government programs that uh, ostensibly take care of all that for us lets us just completely ignore that and act like it's not our responsibility. So we need individual responsibility for ourselves and our own retirement, but we also need to have this sense of communal responsibility in helping people around us you know, and voluntarily, not through having money taken from us and being inefficiently spent. With your knowledge and experience in psychology, is there any, you know, easy way to do that, easy way to get people to recognize sort of like what the burden that they should, you know, own up to or, or the responsibility that they need to take on? Yeah, I wish I knew. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, right. it's something that's even harder given our, our technological age. We're even more disconnected from people because we're communicating with people, you know, online as opposed to face to face more and more and more. Um, you know, even my close friends, I, I probably text them, call them more than I actually see them. So uh, it's, it's a really hard uh, thing to get over, but it's something that we really need to start talking about. And we need to start talking about taking care of our problems at a local level because obviously it's kind of statewide and even federal wide um, solutions aren't actually helping us. Yeah, certainly. So 
to end off here, um, are there any ask or if, if you were to make like a request to the audience, you know, anything like that, what, what kind of, what would you like to leave them off with? What, what, you know, maybe <laughs> we're talking about a lot of gloomy, depressing problems yeah. in California. No, uh, I guess it depends on where, what, where their, uh, their current train of thought is. I mean, if to, to people who don't know much about libertarianism or, uh, or these ideas, I would certainly recommend, you know, uh, picking up a couple of books, doing some research online, following some, you know, maybe some libertarian podcasts or something. And, I'm getting familiar with these ideas, but do you have any um, favorites you'd, you'd like to tell people? Oh, about? sure. I mean, well, in terms of books, um, if you're interested in um, like economics, for instance, I would read the book uh, Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. Uh, it's a really good introduction to kind of libertarian economics and how um, a lot of government programs and, uh, you know, even things like tariffs, you know, like Trump is doing uh, are not actually very good for our economy and kind of actually slow everything down. Um, and, you know, just and stuff by Ron Paul, definitely, obviously, uh, are good, it's good reading. Uh, but and then in terms of podcasts, I would absolutely recommend checking out uh, the Tom Woods program. Uh, mm -hmm. He's a really bright guy who kind of breaks down uh, libertarianism in a really easy way and uh, in a family friendly way. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so check stuff out like that. Um, but in terms of just from from my own self, I would just say, um, you know, I, I really think that you should get more involved in your communities in whatever way you can and, and don't feel like you need to know everything or do everything. You know, if there's an issue you care about, go find a something, you know, an organization in your community that works on that. If you care about the homeless problem, you know, maybe go out and help, you know, some homeless people. You know, if you care about the housing crisis, go work with a group, you know, and even if it's something that I wouldn't agree with, I think more people need to be politically active instead of just singing insults at each other on social media and then casting their vote because that's not getting us anywhere. I'm with you a hundred percent. Well, I appreciate those recommendations and, and Chris, I, I really commend you for what you're doing, getting, you know, making that leap into being a candidate and running for office. I can't even imagine sort of the resistance you must get from, you know, friends, family, and also just the, you know, just the burden on yourself to, to take that on. It's huge, man. I think it's a great example for people, a great example for our generation to get out there and do it. So, um, you know, it's an honor having you on the show and, and, you know, I'm, I wish you the best of luck on election day. Well, thank you very much. And thank you very much for doing this podcast. I think it's a great thing you're working on here. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Any feedback is always greatly appreciated. Feel free to leave it on the KWC podcast on Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, just to give you some background information about this episode here, you know, if you couldn't tell, I've had I've talked to some libertarian candidates, you know, all of which were running for a position in this upcoming election. I thought it was a good time to highlight these candidates. It's not necessarily the primary focus of the podcast here, but it's sort of that time of year. So uh, 
you know, let me know what other kind of people you would want to hear. And I'd be happy to get them on the show. Uh, so thanks as always for listening. And again, I look forward to your feedback and, and hope to hear from you soon. Have a great day.